My name is Allison Daisley. I work in communications and marketing, and I'm a mother of two. I want Peak 40 health and a Peak 40 body. Welcome to Peak 40, the podcast that brings you the tips, tactics, and stories for living your best life in midlife. If you're in your mid-30s to 50s, Peak 40 is the place to get actionable advice on the nuances of nutrition, training, recovery, and mindset in midlife. For the full experience and other valuable resources, register for the Peak 40 weekly newsletter at drbubs.com forward slash peak 40 to enhance your lifestyle and start making midlife your best life. Thanks for joining me for the first episode of the Peak 40 podcast, where I'm going to draw upon my 18 years of experience and insights from some of the best of the best doctors, scientists, coaches, and athletes in the world to help you navigate the nuances of midlife and how things change when it comes to your nutrition, your training, your recovery. Let's be honest, we got to get those achy joints feeling better. And perhaps the most important, mindset. Now, why the title Peak 40? After I wrote my first book, Peak, A Deeper Dive into Athletic Performance, I was approached by a lot of coaches and practitioners and performance staff members who, with their busy schedules and, of course, being busy in midlife, wanted a more simplified approach to nutrition. This actually dovetailed with the clients I was seeing in the general population who were so busy with the demands and the stress and the lack of sleep of midlife that their physical health was on the decline and they seemed to lose that mental spark and passion they once had. That's why I wrote my new book, Peak 40, to offer simple, science-driven, and time-efficient strategies to reignite your energy levels and achieve your performance goals in midlife. Let's be honest, things are a little different in midlife. Lack of sleep, higher stress, demanding schedule, and general lack of time can sneak up on you and leave you feeling like you're stuck in neutral, or what sometimes feels like reverse. Weight gain, fatigue, joint pain, and the like all start to creep up on you. And it doesn't matter if you're a CEO, surgeon, working a 9-to-5, or even a pro athlete. In midlife, there's always some type of mental or physical challenge that seems to present itself. But rather than accepting the extra 20 pounds, the achy shoulder and back, and feeling like you have to drag yourself out of bed every morning, there is a better way. Peak 40 is about conquering your health challenges and your performance goals in midlife. It's about reigniting your energy and your passion so you can start making midlife your best life. So come with me on this journey. I don't have all the answers, but I'm going to share with you what I've learned in the last almost 20 years of practice on the nutrition and training and mindset front. And hopefully we'll learn from some of the best experts in the world on how to implement simple tips, tactics, and strategies so you can start feeling better today. In episode number one, we're going to start with breakfast. The start of the day is when your compliance is the highest, and so it's the perfect place to start when looking to make some changes on the nutrition front. Breakfast is an area that I start with with most of my clients in the general population when we're looking to upgrade nutrition, because unfortunately, too many people still struggle with making the right choices for breakfast, and then that ultimately impacts them throughout the mid-morning all the way through until lunch and, and really sets you up to struggle for most of the day. So let's look at a few statistics here. So people who don't eat breakfast typically have higher HbA1c levels. That's your three-month average of blood sugars. They also have higher diastolic blood pressure, higher triglycerides, higher uric acid levels, which is a marker of inflammation, and lower HDL, the good cholesterol levels. Breakfast skippers are also more likely to have a higher body weight, greater risk of developing type 2 diabetes, and increased prevalence of atherosclerosis. Now, 
that list I gave you is all from association studies, right? So this isn't proving cause and effect. It's just showing tendencies. Simply eating breakfast will not necessarily reverse these things. We've got to adopt the right breakfast. In order to better understand breakfast, I'm going to share with you some clips from Dr. Javier Gonzalez, assistant professor in human physiology from Bath University, who's done some extensive studies on breakfast. He's going to cover a few key concepts here. The first is understanding energy balance. I'm sure you've heard that calories in, calories out model, which is the best predictor of whether you're going to lose weight, gain weight, or maintain. Javier is going to share with you some more statistics around breakfast. He'll talk about whether the coffee you have with all those calories from sugar, cream, etc. actually counts as breakfast. And he'll also touch on something really fascinating, which is called the second meal effect. So if you're someone who's overweight or obese, skipping breakfast has an unintended consequence at your next meal, lunch. Have a listen, and I'll circle back with you at the end of the clip. What we might define as breakfast is a little bit tricky. Some people might think it has to be um, a solid meal or semi-solid meal with cereal or something similar. Um, whereas some people might not think they're having breakfast, but they might be having a, a huge um, latte with loads of sugar in it, not realizing that they're ingesting a load of calories and essentially for, for their physiology, that is consuming a breakfast if it was consumed um, within within two hours of waking. Um, and breakfast is has there are a lot of myths and, and um, preconceptions around the effects of breakfast on health. For sure. Um, we, we commonly hear people say things like breakfast is the most important meal of the day. We should really not skip breakfast. Um, and it's understandable why people think that because if you just – survey people and measure their weights, then people who say they're a breakfast consumer are much less likely to be overweight or obese than people who regularly skip breakfast. But what we're interested in is whether there's a cause and effect relationship between breakfast consumption and obesity. And the problem when you're doing these observational studies um, is that we can't understand cause and effect. We can just understand these associations. And there are a number of other confounding variables that, that can play a role there. Yeah, absolutely. It's a tricky one to unravel with all the different variables there. And in terms of, you know, those observational studies, where are we at in the sense of um, being able to say, you know, you mentioned there breakfast eaters typically will have a lower body weight. Um, And of course, you know, weight loss is about energy balance. I think a lot of listeners would say, well, if someone's reducing their caloric intake by not eating breakfast, sometimes dramatically, you know, wouldn't that help lead to weight loss? So perhaps you can do maybe a quick energy balance review and then circle back to, to how that may impact the rest of the day. So our, our body weight over time um, is primarily dictated by our energy balance. Um, an energy balance um, is the balance between energy consumed um, and energy expended. So if we, if we break that down further, on the energy intake side, the food we consume, um, we mainly derive energy from carbohydrates, fats, and protein. Um, and we can also, as humans, derive some energy from al- alcohol or ethanol as well. Um, and it's also dependent on the amount we actually absorb. So we would term it metabolizable energy is the amount of the energy that we've eaten that is actually absorbed across the intestine and that we don't just excrete out straight away. Yep. Um, but we know that mo- most of what we eat is going to get absorbed. So that excretion part is, is really minimal. Um, so we, we've got energy intake and then we've got energy expenditure and that can be broken down into three main components. We've got resting metabolic rate, which is the energy we, we use just to maintain all of our bodily functions at at rest. 
We've then got dietary-induced thermogenesis or the thermic effects of feeding. And um, that's the energy we invest in digesting, metabolizing and storing or, or oxidizing the food that we've eaten. Um, and that's why you might sometimes feel a little bit hot after eating a large meal. And um, the effects of different foods on dietary-induced thermogenesis are quite interesting. So protein has quite a large thermic effect. Um, so up to 30% of the energy that is in protein can be essentially wasted as heat loss um, due to this dietary-induced thermogenesis. And um, what's less well-known is that ethanol is, also has quite a high thermic effect. So here in the UK, um, some people use the term a, a beer jacket, which is where if they've drunk a alcohol, <laughs> they feel a bit warmer. Um, and that's primarily due to this dietary-induced thermogenesis. Um, we've then got physical activity, energy expenditure, um, and that encompasses all of the um, energy that's, that muscles use um, to produce force um, and, and movement. Um, that spans from um, exercise, as, as we typically think of, like running and cycling, but right down to things that we're not really aware we're doing. So we might be fidgeting, um, chewing, chewing gum, um, even just, just the energy cost of standing um, is counts as physical activity energy expenditure. And that, that can add up to quite a significant amount across a day. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, some of your work in terms of activity levels between groups that eat breakfast and don't eat breakfast, um, can you talk about some of the work you've done with accelerometers and assessing that activity level between breakfast eaters and people who abstain from breakfast? Yeah, yeah. Well, here, herein lies one of the problems with the observational studies because um, people who regularly consume breakfast are also more likely to lead a healthy lifestyle in, in many other ways, including physical activity. So we don't. this is one of the reasons why we don't know whether breakfast is the cause for this lower body mass in people who regularly eat breakfast, because it may be that they're more physically active, and it's the physical activity that is, is driving this. So going to so, the gym, going for a run, all these things are just embedded into their routine, right? Exactly, yeah. They're also more likely to eat um more fruit and vegetables, less likely to smoke, um, and a number of other things too. Um, so this um, prompted James Betts, one of my colleagues now, it was before I came to Bath actually, um, to run a, a randomized controlled trial um, to understand the effects of breakfast on energy balance. So what he did was recruited a group of lean and a group of obese um, volunteers, and they were randomly assigned for six weeks to either consume breakfast every day um, or fast every day um, or extend their morning fast. And, and it was quite an extreme intervention. So the fasting group couldn't consume any stimulating nutrients until midday every day. So they'd wake up in the morning. They were allowed essentially water only. Um, whereas the breakfast group um, had to consume at least 700 calories before um, 11 a.m. Um, so it was kind of a proof of principle. That is a large breakfast. Um, yep. Most people tended to eat a relatively high carbohydrate breakfast too. And, and so we're interested in, in the future, looking at whether manipulating the type of breakfast is important. But based on this study, it seems that when people self-select a breakfast, it, it tends to be high carbohydrate. And what, what James found was that um, randomizing people to consume breakfast increased their physical activity um, across the whole day, but in particular in the morning. Um, this was more apparent in, in the lean cohort the, that he, um, he studied, um, but it was, it was quite a substantial amount too. So 
Um, the the energy energy they were eating was um, at least 700 calories in the morning, and the increase in physical activity energy expenditure compared to the fasting group was about 440 calories per day, kilocalories per day. Um, wow. So that, that's quite a lot. Yeah, it's, it's equivalent to, to going to the gym for for many people for about an hour or so. What does the research show in terms of that blood glucose control, whether someone's abstaining from breakfast or eating breakfast, and you know, does it matter if they're actually lean or obese? Yeah, this is something I, I'm really interested in. It's, it's known as the second meal effect, um, whereby your response – so if, if we start off with, with glucose control, first of all. So whenever we eat a meal containing carbohydrates, um, our blood sugar levels or blood glucose concentrations will rise. Um, they'll peak at about – if we're healthy, then about 30 to 60 minutes. And then they'll fall back down again to pretty much baseline by around two hours. Um, and the, we need to control that, that glucose in, in, in this tight range. Um, otherwise, we get a number of complications such as cardiovascular disease and, and damage to various blood vessels. And, and ultimately, we can develop type 2 diabetes if, if blood glucose levels rise too high. Yep. Um, and what's interesting is if we consume a meal um, in the morning, let's say we have our breakfast, then our response, our glucose response to lunch, our glucose control is better than if we'd fasted in the morning. And that's known as the, the second meal effect. Um, we're not f fully aware um, of the mechanisms that, that um, regulate that, um, but it could be related to um, improvements in insulin sensitivity. So that is, um, insulin is the main hormone that, that regulates our blood sugar levels. And um, if we're more insulin sensitive, then um, for the same amount of insulin, we'll get better glucose control. Essentially, our, our tissues, such as our muscle, will take up more glucose out of the bloodstream for the same amount of insulin if they're more insulin sensitive. Um, it may also relate to some, some of the liver glucose output. So the liver is constantly putting out glucose into the bloodstream. And what this second, what might happen with this second meal effect is that we get a greater suppression of glucose output from the liver with our second meal. All right, let's sum up here and see what this means for you in midlife. Well, Dr. Gonzalez found that when individuals were eating breakfast, they actually increased their energy expenditure throughout the rest of the day right? They move more. And that's important when we're talking weight loss, because again, energy in versus energy out. I know it's been pummeled over the years, but that is actually the best predictor of whether or not you're going to lose weight. And so including that breakfast, if it increases that energy is a win. Not only that, we see that if you don't eat breakfast, you actually move less in the day. And that can be something as simple and as innocuous as fidgeting, which actually accounts for a significant amount of calories. And so if we're looking for simple rules and simple wins here, including breakfast is a great strategy. Not only that, it also helps you to better tolerate carbohydrates, which if you're struggling with weight gain is a very good thing. Your fat cells actually get better at dealing with glucose, which again is a very important adaptation for losing weight. Remember, context matters. If you are lean or if you're someone who's overweight or obese, the rules are a little bit different. And we see this with the second meal effect. The fact that if someone is more overweight or obese, skipping that breakfast can actually worsen glucose control at the lunch meal, which is going to predispose you to more cravings. You're going to be, you know, snacking more and wanting to snack more throughout the rest of the day, which is a, a hard thing 
to control and to have to deal with if you're just trying to be productive, let alone trying to lose weight. Let's shift gears now and talk about the timing of exercise around your breakfast. Should you train before you eat? Should you exercise after you eat? Well, again, the simple rule is that whatever time you can train, if you can be consistent and always repeat it, that's the best time. But there are specific little changes that can occur, which you'll hear about here from Dr. Rob Edinburgh, also from Bath University. If we strength train before we eat breakfast, we get certain beneficial changes in muscle. And if we do some walking after a meal, we also get some nice adaptations. So I'll let you listen to this clip here from Dr. Rob Edinburgh from Bath University. And we know that um, uh, meal exercise interactions can influence acute metabolic responses to exercise. So we've known this for a long time. An example is for people with and without type 2 diabetes, the blood glucose response to a single meal can be lowered to a greater extent if you perform your exercise after compared to before the meal. And this is basically to do with increased uh, oxidation or burning of the carbohydrates that you've eaten. So if you look at that acute um, studies, it could be suggested that you should perform moderate intensity activity um, between 30 to 120 minutes after eating carbohydrate rich meals to help lower blood glucose um, peaks from that meal. So in theory, this might reduce cardiovascular disease risk um, if you repeated that stimulus after every single meal that was consumed. Um, there was a study by uh, Karen Van Proyen. It was in the Journal of Physiology in 2010. Um, it's a really nice study, and it was kind of a, a pivotal study for setting up some of the work that we did. And in their study, healthy men um, consumed a uh, high-calorie, uh, fat-rich diet. So it was they were eating 30% um, above their normal and... Uh, I wouldn't call it high fat, but it was um, 50% of energy was coming from fat. Mm -hmm. And then they exercised for 300 minutes a week. So quite high exercise volume for six weeks. And they either had a carbohydrate rich breakfast before and then one gram per kilogram of body weight carbohydrate during exercise. Or they exercised fasted and then they had the breakfast and additional carbohydrate after exercise. They had a control group and relative to that control group, the blood sugar response to a sugary drink. So the same test that I talked about earlier that decreased when exercise was performed in the fasted state, but not in the carbohydrate fed state. And they also estimated insulin sensitivity and they showed that also improved only if exercise was performed in the fasted state. So some really nice um, research there. It was, a, it was a, a kind of a, a landmark study in this area and um, showed that there might be some metabolic benefits of doing exercise in the fasted state. So overall, the mechanisms seem to point towards increased fat use with exercise in the fasted state being important for these changes in the health of muscle. Uh, key proteins such as AMPK and GLUT4 being upregulated, changes to the fat composition of muscle membranes, uh, and as you mentioned there, an increased turnover of the fat stores themselves. And a really nice element of our study was that we um, we measured um, um, expired air samples during every single exercise training study uh, session. And what we found is there was a correlation between um, the men who burned the most fat during the exercise training sessions and uh, the, the change in our estimate of insulin sensitivity. So it, it again, Tremendous. supports that idea that, yeah, that there's still a lot more mechanistic work to be done. It's a really exciting area, but... 
the evidence from our study certainly points towards um, the, the burning more fat during exercise um, may uh, hold the benefit to unlocking some of these, um, these, these health benefits. All right, so if you're a morning exerciser, you've got a couple of great options to choose from here. You can strength train before you eat breakfast, which is actually a tremendous way to increase the fat utilization when you're training. It primarily comes as well, or a large portion comes from the fats within the muscle, which is actually a powerful signal to improve your insulin sensitivity, which is effectively how well you control your blood sugars. And that's a great predictor for maintaining a healthy weight. So again, you can strength train before breakfast, have a coffee, fuel up with a bit of caffeine, do your training, and then eat breakfast afterwards. Another strategy that Rob discussed there was simply going for a walk after you eat, which is easy, it's simple. You can take a phone call, listen to a podcast, have a walking meeting, whether it's after breakfast, could be after lunch. Again, Particularly if you struggle with blood sugar control, if you're someone who struggles with prediabetes or diabetes, this is a tremendous and again, simple strategy to help really improve your glucose control and lower those spikes after meals. All right, let's sum up episode number one. If you skip breakfast, you actually start to move less for the rest of the day. And this can be as subtle as fidgeting which actually over time accounts for a significant amount of calories. We also saw that the group that eats breakfast actually increases their activity across the entire day and particularly in the morning. Another benefit is the second meal effect. If you're overweight or obese, eating breakfast improves your glucose response to lunch, which means you're less likely to get that mid-afternoon dip, low blood sugars, low energy, where you're craving something sugary or another cup of coffee. So what should you eat for breakfast? Well, breakfast is actually the meal of the day that we consume the least amount of protein. So that's the first place you should start. You want to achieve a minimum of 20 grams of protein at breakfast. And now protein doesn't just build muscles. Don't fall into that trap. Protein is crucial for everything in your body. Skin, hair, nails, immune cells, you name it, protein builds it. And so let's get at least 20 grams of protein from again, eggs, yogurt, protein shake, plant-based, whatever you like. And from there, the rest of your energy intake from carbohydrates and fats is largely dictated by your fitness level, how lean you are, right? The more active you are, the more fuel you can have in terms of carbohydrates and fats. The more you're trying to lose weight, well, then you can dial down the carbohydrates and fats and maybe trim out some of the excess mueslis, toast, juices, etc. If you have questions about breakfast, or perhaps where fasting or intermittent fasting fits into this whole story, then please reach out on social media at Dr. Bubs on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, and use the hashtag Peak40 so we can find those questions for our future Q&A episodes. If you want to take a deeper dive, then sign up for our Peak40 weekly email newsletter for more detailed and granular looks at some of the content covered in this podcast. You can also check out my new book, Peak 40, which is coming out next Thursday, May 20th, and is available right now for pre-order on all major book outlets. And lastly, I need your help. 
we're going to aim for 1,000 downloads in the first month of the Peak 40 podcast. So if you enjoyed the content, please share with your friends or colleagues and help us to hit that 1,000 download mark. All right, have a great rest of your week and let's start making midlife your best life. Your best life.